There's a buzzing up here. I don't know why. Um, so Revelation chapter 6. If there's, there's no way around it. There's, there's a weight to this chapter. Chris Gorman took 4 and 5. There were more fun. Uh, no, but on that, like, uh, just want to say, I, I hope you are. I'm so thankful that we have Chris Gorman here to preach. Uh, it's so wonderful to know just when either I'm not here or just not able to preach that he, he loves the word. And so uh, just to you, you've greatly blessed me, and I know you've blessed the church. So thank you very much. If you haven't, come, come tell Chris just what a blessing he is as he preaches. Um, this is definitely, if you're here and, and you kind of like that six steps to the better life, more comfort, that's not going to happen in this text. So, so just putting that out there. Um, one of the commentaries I read this week in preparation just for this sermon, it asked some really good questions and it made me just start thinking. And some of the questions it began to ask was, what comes to mind when Jesus is on his throne? Like, what should the world look like if Jesus is in control of all powers, of all kingdoms, and all kings? What would that look like? And don't just give the Sunday school answer. But like, think. What would it look like? Or, or maybe just think, what is your expectation? Maybe you, maybe you know, okay, this is the biblical answer, but the way I function, the way I act, the way I live, the way I think, I think it should look like, like this. Today, that, that's what we're looking at. We're looking at the first six seals, then we'll have chapter seven, which is the break between six and seven, and between the six and seven seal, and then in chapter eight, we will resume and look at the seventh seal um, so today we're going to look at what does life look like in between the, the resurrection of Christ and his ascension and the return of Christ. That, that's where we're at. That's what Revelation is written for. It's written for the church so that we know how do we stand firm, how do we persevere. And so let me just recap how we got to where we're at today in case you're kind of joining us. In chapter 1, Revelation begins with John giving us this glorious vision of Jesus Christ. He has conquered. He holds the keys of, of death and Hades. He is our conquering king, seen in all brilliant light and glory. He is amongst the churches, holding them. He's with them. And then we go into chapters 2 and 3, where we have a message written to seven churches. And these churches, the number seven, represents um, completion. They represent the complete number of churches that will exist for all time. And so it is a message not just for them, but for us also. And the primary gist is stand firm persevere in the midst of the tribulation in chapter four we move into the throne room where we see in chapters two and three there's there's temptation here on earth but yet in heaven god is on his throne and he's being worshiped by all of the heavenly beings and then in chapter five our our gaze shifts just a little bit from the father and now we look at jesus who's described as the lion the the um from the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. And then when we look and we see this powerful, amazing-looking lion, the vision is he looks like a lamb that was slain. It's a picture of the cross and that he was crucified so that we who believe in him would have life. But what we see in chapter 5 is that the Father, he holds a scroll. And the scroll has written on it all the events that will take place from the ascension, from the resurrection of Christ, all the way to the return of Christ. And the only way that these events will come to be is if the scroll is opened. But the problem is no one can open the scroll until Jesus comes, and because of the cross, he is worthy to open the scroll. So he now takes the scroll, that's chapter 6 or 5, and now chapter 6, he's going to open the scroll. And there's seven seals, and so we're going to open up one through six today, and then in two weeks we'll look at the seventh seal. So that, that's how we're at today. So these six seals are going to show us what takes place in between the comings of Christ. 
And what we're going to do is we're going to look at the first four seals together, and then we'll look at seal five and then seal six. The reason we do that is seals one through four clearly are a unit with the four horses, just as the first four trumpets are together, just as the first four bowls are together. And so that is how we're going to make our way through. So we begin with the sound of the thundering hooves. That's what we have, seals one through four. And you might just kind of, as Ben was reading it, like, like what's happening here? Like we have these horses just being unleashed, these multicolored horses, and they're bringing death, destruction, and devastation on earth. And what we see is that there are four horses, and in verse 2, we see a white horse. At, at the opening of a seal, Jesus opens the seal, the living creature says, come, and all of a sudden a white horse comes, and he's wearing a crown, and he has a bow in his hand, and he conquers, and he makes war. Now, some people uh, have said that this is Christ because he's on a white horse, and in Revelation 19, we see Christ is on a white horse, and so the idea would be the gospel is going forth into all the world, and, and that's a possibility. There are many people uh, that, that will hold that, and, and that, that's a, a position. I don't think that's true. Um, it's not going to skew everything if, if that's what someone believes, but clearly, the four horses are in a unit. They're working together. We don't have three bringing judgment and, and one doing something good. Just like when we go to the trumpets, there, there's four, the first four trumpets that act together in a unit all bring judgment. There's not three bad, one good. When we go to the bowls, the first four bowls clearly are a unit. There's not three bad, one good. So, and, and Jesus is the one opening the seal. Remember, he, he's opening the seal. Then the living creature that worships Jesus says, Come! Nobody tells that to Jesus. Like the living creature isn't saying, okay, Jesus, you need to you get down there, do your thing. Um, so that's, I would push against that it's Jesus. But what I think is we have, we, we have a figure, probably some type of false Messiah type figure. And, and I don't think it's just one, but it's, it's those who are going to deceive and, and make war, whether that's just um, military war or there's also civil wars, or there's also just deceit with different religions. I think many things could possibly be seen in this. Uh, but we have a figure who's coming to conquer, and he's, he's deceiving others in how he conquers. Next, in verse 3, we have a red horse, and the rider has a great sword, and the rider has authority to remove peace. And the result is that people are attacking one another. Now, this clearly is... is communicating a military war, but also probably civil war within a nation, things that would include just killing and murder, racism, political unrest, bigotry. I mean, those are the kind of things we see in America right now, right? Like that's, that's actually where we live right now. We see people being murdered regularly. We see racism. We see political unrest. We see bigotry happening all over. We see that in other nations as well, and that's been happening for centuries. And verse 5 comes the third horse. This horse has a, uh, is black, and its rider carries scales in his hands. Not like scales of a snake, but scales that you would weigh something with. Um, and we see that he inflicts famine upon the world. A quart of wheat was, an average, was what an average person would eat a day. And a denarius is what the average person made a day. So now the idea is you're going to work all day and you just barely have enough to feed yourself or you divide it up and your family eats but everyone is still hungry. Or for a denarius you can buy a quart of barley which is not nearly as nutritious and filling but you, or you can buy three quarts of that. So these prices reflect in the first century um, a 10 to 16 times the normal price. So this is severe inflation that is happening. Um, now just think about that. Is there famine that we've seen in the world? Does that exist today? Has that existed? In fact, I got onto some websites. Today, 25,000 people will die because of hunger. That's today. That's in two days, all of Lacey would be dead because of hunger. 9.1 million people die every year because of hunger-related issues. That's more people that will die than AIDS, malaria, and tuberculosis all combined. 
According to foodaidfoundation.org, 795 million people live unhealthy lives because of insufficient amount of food. One in six children in underdeveloped countries um, are underweight. This is exactly where we live right now. That There has been famine, there is hunger all over the world. Lastly, verse 7 comes a fourth horse, and this horse is this sickly looking. It's green, it's pale, it looks like it's dead. Its rider's name is Death. Hades follows behind it. And this horse seems to, to kind of summarize like what the other horses are doing and maybe adding a little bit to it. He says, he has come to bring death by sword, by famine, by pestilence, and by wild beasts. And so what we see is that these four horses are just bringing destruction all over the earth. And now just so you know, when, when we look at this, and I think Chris hit on this as well, we're in Revelation. It is loaded with Old Testament imagery. Um, we could go to Zechariah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8, where we see four horses that are going out and patrolling the earth, bringing judgment. And so the, this is very much pooling from Zechariah. In Ezekiel chapter 14, when you look at chap, verses 22, 23, and 24, these four judgments, sword, famine, pestilence, and wild beasts, God used to pour out on his people Israel because of sexual immorality and impurity and idolatry. And so he used it to bring destruction on them that a remnant would come about. And so these are things that God has used, and now he's using them at a full scale upon the entire earth as judgment. So when we think about this, these four seals are what's describing all the destruction, all the deaths, all the murders, all the diseases that have taken place over the history, over the centuries since the resurrection of Christ. That's, that's what these are communicating. So all the chaos that we see, we see is coming out of these four seals. But, but I ask you, is it chaos? Are these horses and their riders just randomly going about doing whatever it is that they want? Let's, let, let's look at another question. Who sends the horses? Go back to verse 1. Now I watch when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals. Well, who's opening the seals? The Lamb, Jesus Christ. Who, who did Jesus take the scroll from? From the Father. So this is God's ordained historical book that the Lamb is opening and he's unleashing. And then notice words like this. Verse 2, a bow and a crown were given to him. Verse 4, its rider was permitted to take peace. Verse 8, and they were given authority over a fourth of the earth. So are these horses are doing anything they want? It sounds and it seems like they're not causing random destruction, but they're sent out from the throne room of God by the Lamb of God to bring about destruction and judgment under the sovereign rule of God. And in fact, notice that what they're doing is limited. We see that under the fourth seal, that they only affect a quarter of the earth. Their, their judgment is restrained. It's limited. They can't do whatever they want. They can only do as much as the Lamb will allow them to. And so one thing we, we just need to take note there, that's God's mercy. Like just, just realize that. So in this, all of a sudden, just destruction everywhere. When we read only a quarter is affected, meaning God is having mercy right now. His full judgment is not being unleashed on all of creation. That comes in seal six. We'll get there. We'll see the full judgment of God poured out upon unbelieving humanity. But here, a quarter of the earth is affected, meaning not all the population. And and this is to provide time for the gospel to go forth that more and more people would be saved. We read about that in Romans. Romans chapter 1, Paul talks about God has wrath against all of mankind because of their sinful. But in chapter 2, verse 4, he says, talking about why God has not come back yet, he says, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? 
not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. So what Paul is saying is, do you want to know why God doesn't come back right now? It's, it's to give time for repentance. That's the point. It's for the gospel to keep going. There'd be more people who would be saying, if he came right now, which he would be totally in the right to do, less people would know the gospel. So he's patient, merciful, as the gospel is going forth. So just these judgments are meant to point us to the sixth seal, where the final judgment will come. But they're simply a foreshadowing. And so when we read CNN, read CNN, when we watch CNN, I don't know if you read CNN, but if you watch CNN or whatever your little three-digit like news broadcast is, um, it shouldn't throw us into a frenzy, should it? Now think about this. If we understand seals one through four, when we watch the news, what are we watching? Go ahead, interaction. Chaos. Death, chaos, destruction. We're watching these seals lived out, right? That's the point. We're literally seeing the very things in Scripture being carried forth. So it shouldn't cause us to be in a frenzy, but when our unbelieving friends say, man, can you believe all that is happening? We have an amazing opportunity right now to share the gospel. We go, yeah, I, I, I can believe it. Because according to the word, this is exactly what it says. And God is allowing this judgment to take place as a means to show us there is a greater judgment. That's a powerful way to begin talking to people and sharing the gospel. So who is affected? Well, surely unbelievers are affected. Um, these judgments are, are, are happening worldwide, right? I mean, it's, it's going everywhere. Uh, there's death, there's judgment, there's wars, there's famines, there's pestilence, there's, there's diseases. So unbelievers are certainly being affected in here. However, the focus of the text, I believe, leads us to seeing that believers are especially being affected. So that's what we're going to look at because the thrust of the text is moving us to see believers are affected. And we'll see that as we get into the fifth seal. And now there's some people that, that they will say, well, I don't think the church is affected now. And they believe that the church has actually been removed from uh, creation at this, or from earth at this moment. And they would, they would say things like there's been a secret rapture that has occurred. I don't hold true to that. Uh, I don't think that makes sense. And I just want to give seven reasons in our, well, six reasons from our text, an additional one from history, that shows that we need to see the church is very much being affected by these seals. This text is not written for just unbelievers who don't read the Bible. It's written for you and for me. It's written for believers. It's written that we would have confidence in who our God is. So let me just give seven reasons why we know the church is being affected here. Number one, there's no textual indication that the church has been removed. That's enough right there that we can say there's zero textual. We go from uh, you know, chapters two and three where there's a message to the church, to the throne room four and five. We see uh, the Father, we see the Son, and now we're looking at what's happening here on earth, lived out. There's been nothing that says anyone's been removed. Uh, number two, John in chapter one, verse nine, says he is our brother and partner in the tribulation. He's already said, look, life on earth is tribulation, and, and we're meant to endure and to persevere. Um, the churches, number three, are already facing exactly what's happening right here. We have um, in Smyrna, chapter 2, verse 10, they're already told 10 days of persecution is coming. Many of them will die. In chapter 2, verse 13, Antipas, who's in Pergamum, who was possibly the pastor, the founding pastor, or just a member of that church, he was already killed for his faith. Number 3, in chapter 13, verse 10, Christians are said that they will be killed by the sword. In chapter 13, verse 17, we read Christians will not be able to buy or sell, which seems to align with famine, potentially. It seems that these seals are explaining how the church will be persecuted throughout the days. And in fact, I have one. Well, I had one. I do have one. Normally I type everything, but... Not always. Maybe I should go back to that. 
Um, but one of the commentaries, uh, th- now this is, this is number six. This gives a historical understanding. In 177 A.D., uh, Photinus, bishop of Lyons, was martyred along with Christians of his city. The Christians were accused of incest, probably a result of their referring to one another as brother and sister, and cannibalism because of the misunderstandings that took place when they take the Lord's Supper, that they are partaking of the flesh and blood of their Lord and Savior. Christians were arrested, tortured, and then brought into the arena to serve as public entertainment. Two by two, they were brought out for the gawking, bloodthirsty crowd. They were tortured and then thrown to the beast. This is within 100 years. This is within about 75 years of Revelation being written. We are seeing that Christians are being killed, tortured, and thrown to the wild beasts. And if you read Fox's book of Martyrs, which is updated quite regularly, you see that Christians have been killed throughout the centuries. In fact, there have been more Christians killed in the last hundred years than in all the other centuries combined. So we are seeing these four seals bringing about judgment on earth, and especially the church is being affected by them. Number seven, the biggest clue the church remains is the the fifth seal, which we're about to look at. We see that Christians have been martyred, and will be martyred. And so we're about to look at that. And so what we have, before we move on, first four seals, under the sovereign rule of God, are bringing judgment here on earth, foreshadowing the great judgment. Nothing is happening in chaos. Remember, things look like they're chaos from earth's perspective, but from heaven's perspective, one of the best things I love is that the Father is on his throne, there's lights and there's glory all around him, and remember the sea? The sea is like what in front of him? Glass. Now sea, in apocalyptic literature, always, always refers to the chaos and destruction of the world. But from the throne room, it's glass. And so we need to remember that things here on earth they look chaotic. When we watch CNN, when we watch Fox News or whatever it is, we can easily become anxious. But if we watch them with faith and understanding of God's word, we can then begin to understand, okay, what is God actually doing here on earth? So let's move. Fifth seal, the cry of the martyred saints. Here we have a picture, we have a question, and we have a response. The picture, verse 9, we have the lambs, Uh, The Lamb opens the fifth seal, and under the altar of God are Christians who have been martyred. And we are told why they have been killed. For the word of God, for the witness that they have borne. These Christians have been killed because they have testified of the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They counted Christ more costly, more precious, more beautiful than life itself. And therefore they they were fed to the wild beasts, they were killed by the sword, they've been killed by disease and by famine and by, by whatever else takes place. Their motto was Philippians 1.21, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. And they embraced that. And so these, these saints that are now under the, under the altar of God, which probably represents his, his protection and care for them, probably, uh, they have a question. In verse 10, we see this question. So they're looking at the destruction that these horses are bringing and the fact that their, their brothers and their sisters in Christ are being martyred and killed. And so they say, O oh, sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Now, I don't know how you read that. But here's a way we don't need to read that. Anyone ever travel with like a five-year-old on a road trip? What does that five-year-old do on the road trip? Like 10 minutes in. How much longer, right? I need to go to the bathroom. I need to go potty. Like it's just so annoying. Sorry, just give our kids cups and say, we'll be done in 12 hours. Let's go. Now, right? What we do? So like, that's what we want to do, right? Suck it up. Um, 
These aren't whiny saints. These aren't whiny martyrs. How long, Jesus? Like, don't read it that way. Like, there's, I think there's a lot of people who read it that way. In fact, I read commentaries. Oh, man, just, they just can't wait for God to return because they're so upset they don't know what's happening. Is he actually going to do it? No, they're not whiny saints. And we don't need to read it like that. Now, they're probably passionately crying, God, how long? How long, Father, until you return? But how do we know they're not whiny? Like, don't take my word for it. Like, that's pointless, right? Does the text give us any any indication? Well, look at the way they describe God. Sovereign Lord, holy and true. Does that sound like people are about to start whining? Okay, they fully understand who this God is. Sovereign Lord, absolute ownership over all of creation, over everything that exists, over his people, and unrestrained power. That's what sovereign Lord means. Absolute ownership, unrestrained power. He's holy. Everything he does is perfect, and it's for his glory, and he is true. He has promised judgment. He has not lied. He will bring about judgment. So these saints just going, okay, God, we know that you're sovereign in charge of everything. Everything you do is for your glory, and we know that you actually will bring judgment. But how long? Like, is that how we read that? It doesn't make sense with the text, right? Everything we do comes back to what does the word of God tell us, and based upon their understanding of God, now remember, they're in heaven now. They see God. They behold his glory. They're seeing him. They're now coming to him. And I think they're probably asking for two things. One, they're looking at the death of their brothers and sisters from these, these judgmental horses. And, and they're crying out, God, when, when's that going to stop? Like, it's hard watching the saints die. How long? How long until you return? Have you ever wondered that? Like, not in a whiny way, but in a, God, I really want you to return. Like, there is so much death and destruction in this world. Whether it's just disease or natural disasters, natural disasters will look much more under the trumpets. There's so much just war, so much hatred. Don't you want it to be done? Like, I want it to be done. Like, I long for that day, and it's a good thing you and I are not in control, because we'd end it right now, because I don't think we're as merciful and kind and patient as God is. But he's using them and these things of chaos that looks like chaos to us as a means of still the gospel going forth. So I think that's one thing that they're asking, too. I, I, think, I think they're saying, God, There is so much rebellion in this world. None of these people want want your glory. God, when will you bring forth your glory? You said you you will bring vengeance. You said you will make known your glory. God, when will your glory come forth that every knee will bow? We're tired of seeing creation and and humanity rebel against you, God. We want to see everything brought under the throne room of God. I think that's what they're calling out for. Calling out for God to bring vengeance. And we know he will. In, in Romans chapter 12, 19, he tells us, we don't need to worry about vengeance. He says, beloved, never avenge yourselves. Well, why? He says, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says, says the Lord. So we don't need to worry about vengeance. The saints, the saints know that. The martyred saints are saying, God, we know it's not up to us. We know you will clearly do the vengeance. We just really want to see that, God. Not that we're wanting just death. We want your glory made known. We want the rebellion to stop. We want the new heavens and new earth where everything is in alignment with you and bows before you for your glory. And so now we come to God's response. And we see this in verse 11. And he gives the martyrs a white robe, signifying that they have been purified. And then he tells them, just just wait. Wait a little longer. Notice, God's not rushing to get to the end. There's a purpose and a judgment, and we'll, we'll look at that purpose in a few moments. 
But the question is, is how long? And so, so God answers that. And he says, until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. You want to know when Christ is returning? You want to know when the new heavens and new earth will be here? You want to know when Christ will gather his bride and his church? You don't need a chart. You don't need a timetable. They won't help you. It's when that last saint is killed. Now, it's not that all saints will be killed, but that last ordained martyr is killed. When his blood hits the ground, that's when the skies will split. Just think about that. That's the message to the church. It's not, don't worry, guys. You'll make it. It gets easy. That's, you're going to die. Many of you will die. That's the message. So what's the point? Why is it that God is allowing his, his people to be killed? We could look in all of Scripture and probably give a hundred answers for how God uses suffering and pain and death for his purposes, but we're just going to give two. Number one, suffering and death advances the gospel. We have to see that. Jesus says in Mark chapter 13, verse 10, the gospel must first be proclaimed to all the nations. In Matthew 24, 14, before he returns, he says, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. If we're going to have a people from every tribe, tongue, nation, language, which we will because in Revelation 7, we see that fulfillment. How do we get there? Well, people have to go to every tribe, tongue, nation, language, and when that happens, then Christ will return. And guess what? All the easy ones have been taken. That's why death and suffering often awaits is because the nations that are still resistant to the gospel are the much more hostile ones to the gospel, which is why they have not been reached yet. We need to know that. But suffering and death has been used to advance the gospel. In Acts chapter 8, in Acts chapter 7, we have Stephen, one of the deacons. He's martyred and he's killed. What happens in Acts 8? The church goes crazy. It goes viral. It goes out into Asia Minor, and we're seeing churches planted all over. How? Because of the death of Stephen propelled the church out. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 12, Paul has been arrested. He's writing to Philip, the, the Christians in Philippi, and he says this, I want you to know, brothers, what has happened to me, the fact of being arrested, the fact that I'm being persecuted at this moment, has served to advance the gospel. Paul's not whining. Hey, guys, you've got to get me out of here. The gospel's on hold. No, it's going forth. Back on January 8th, 1956, anyone remember that day? Some of you will. Some of you are like, no. Um, some of you may have heard this story. If you haven't, it's a great story, and uh, you need to know more about it. But Nate St., Jim Elliott, and three other men, they go to South America because they've been feel, they feel like they've been called to go to a savage cannibalistic tribe called the Aka Indians. You can actually watch a movie about it, uh, The End of the Spear. Is that right? And it's like the son of Nate Saint going and meeting his father's killer. I think, I think that's what happens in that movie. It's a good movie. Sobering movie. Um, so these, these, these men go down there. They fly down there, and they're making progress. It's amazing. They're making contact. They're beginning to trade things with them. And then one day, January 8th, 1956, the Indians come out and they, they kill them. They throw their bodies out into the river and they are dead. And you could hear a pin drop across America at that moment because it just rocked the whole world of America that five men went to South America and they were killed. Um, you know what happened next, though? Some of you do. It's a good story. The wives of these men, they go and they share the gospel. The widows of these men go and they share the gospel with the very people who killed their husbands. And you know what the result is? Gospel advances. They believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
and that whole tribe becomes Christian. God uses the blood of his children as a means of advancing the gospel. Now we might say, well, why? Like, can't we just let it win the first time? God loves to do that which appears foolish and weak in this world to show that the victory is not in your hand or my hand or because of your strength. Because if you're like me, I have a superhero complex and I think I can do a lot. And so God regularly works to show it's not because of your strength. It's not because of your wisdom. It's not because of your might. It's not because of your power. It's not because of your plans. You planned it great, and it failed, and God still made it work. That's what we see. Why? So that he receives all the glory. He re- it's not about you and I receiving glory. It's about God receiving all the glory. He's the one who sent his son Jesus to die on a cross so that we who believe him could be saved, rescued, adopted, forgiven, be brought into his family, that he would be glorified. And so now our lives are to look like Christ. He came to die and to suffer so that we now would follow suit and follow and live like him. And what does it mean then if we're going to live like Christ? Won't it mean that we'll probably lay down our lives also? Now, that sounds stranger here in America, but you go to other nations, that's exactly what they understand when they come to know Christ. Um, We went to Lebanon this last summer and we had uh, uh, met a young man named Aladin. You all remember him? I see two of you. Rose is around here somewhere. Downstairs. She's downstairs teaching. Uh, teaching them probably how to stand firm. Uh, so, so we meet Aladin, and Aladin is a Muslim. And, and, he, and he begins to figure out when he lives in Syria uh, that he, does not, he no longer wants to be a Muslim. And so upon that beginning to be found out, he is thrown into, uh, into camps where he is persecuted, where he is tortured. Uh, he eventually escapes. He believes in Jesus. And since he has believed in Jesus, he has experienced loss, persecution, rejection from his family. Uh, there's been attempts to kill him many times. He's been strangled by his own family, only rescued by the neighbors across the hall. Um, and yet when you meet him, oh, he's been hungry, he's been homeless. Uh, when the first, like, four days, didn't he sleep the whole time? We're like, where is he? He, he was tired. And at first we're like, shouldn't he be out here? You know, us callous Americans. You know, we have a plan, people. You know, the schedule is starting. Where's Aladdin? Somebody go wake him up. He's lazy. No, he's tired because he doesn't have a bed. And now he had a bed, and he felt safe. So he slept for like the first four days, pretty much the entire time. And when you talk to him, he just smiles about the gospel. He just smiles about the gospel, saying it's all worth it. It's all worth it. Jim Hamilton wrote a book. He's a professor over at Southern Seminary. The title is Salvation Through Judgment. He hits every book of the Bible. Sometimes I think he puts a little stretch on it, but he does an amazing job showing how salvation through judgment is one of the primary ways God works throughout the entire book of the Bible. If you're still not convinced, just go to the cross. The only reason you and I are saved, the only reason anyone can be saved, is because Christ came and suffered and died. So anyone that says, well, I don't think God really wants there to be suffering for his people. He sent his son to show us how he will be most glorified. And he's most glorified through the death and resurrection of his son. And now as we who have his spirit live and follow him, God is most glorified as we lay down our lives. Not always leading to death. Let's be clear, it doesn't always lead to death. But laying down our lives, counting the cross of Christ more precious than anything else and if it leads to death it leads to death the cross shows us that God uses suffering in amazing ways that's number one there's two reasons 
Number two, suffering and death ushers in the return of Christ. This is the clear reason that we're given this text here. We can't miss this. Verse 11, God has appointed a certain number of saints to be killed before Jesus will return. As we said, when the last ordained saint has been killed, when that blood hits the ground, the skies will split and Christ will return. Now think about this. If that's true, and I'm sure if we had started this message with saying, hey, does everyone want Christ to return? We'd all raise our hands. Yeah, we want Christ to return. All right, do we all want to live for Christ? Yeah, we want to live for Christ, right? Okay, so what does this mean? This has to affect the way we approach missions. This has to affect the way we approach the Christian life. Jesus said in Luke 9, 23, and he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, Follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. So how does this affect us? What's it calling us to do? Dietrich Bonhoeffer summed it up well. When Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. If we're serious about Christ returning, we want to see his glory, and I want to see his glory. We're serious about wanting to see all of humanity come and bow before him and the new heavens and new earth come. It will not be if we ask questions like, is it safe to go? It will not be if we ask questions, is it comfortable? Is it responsible? Is it convenient? We will not see Christ return if we're waiting for an email or an invitation from the nations to come see them. I'm not calling us to be reckless and irresponsible. Don't hear that. Some of you are great, great, so we just go guns a-blazing, jump into countries, parachute in and die. No. No. Maybe, but no. Matthew 10, 16. This is Jesus. And now, now, listen, just pay attention to all these words. Now, these aren't my words. These are Jesus' words, so they're good. Behold, I am sending you. He's talking to his disciples. Sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So you got that picture? Sheep among wolves. Your sheep go amongst the wolves. Like those odds? So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Be wise. You're sheep. You're not powerful. You're weak. You're going to die. So be wise you're going to die but be wise so it's not calling us to be reckless it's not calling you just just go bully don't even think about anything but but you got to be wise because you're sheep and you're going amongst wolves again to repeat not everyone's going to die but if if we're moving towards the return of christ and we're serious about the return of christ it will be as some of us die and we have to begin to wrestle with that and we have to begin thinking that way If we're to obey Jesus and go to the nations, that will mean, that will mean that we will live as Christ has. And he gave everything, so we also would give everything. That's sobering, isn't it? You could go right back into the Gospels, and Jesus says the same thing. But when we come to Revelation, this is what's good about apocalyptic literature. It communicates these truths in these pictorial forms that we see them in ways that we just don't always see them. So this is simply giving flesh to what Jesus has already called us to do. Notice where the martyrs are. They're they're in the presence of God, right? They're, They're seeing this. They're hearing this. They're in the presence of God. They're under the altar. This is, this is his message to him. And next week, next week we go to Revelation 7. So you're going to love next week. It's a little bit different. Um, but next week looks at, so what happens if we die? You're going, we're going to love this? <laughs> it's great. Revelation 7 is, is what happens as we die, and we see that the saints are all coming to the throne room. And guess who stands in the throne room? The saints stand in the throne room 
of God. And it tells us that God himself will wipe away every tear from us in chapter 7, verse 17, that his son will satisfy us, his son will guide us and be like a shepherd to us, and the father will shelter us until we take away all pain, all misery from us, and completely provide for all of our needs. That's the picture we have. So he's saying, yes, we're going to give it all, but guess what? God meets everything for you. And, And if we die... It doesn't separate us from Christ. Why? Well, who holds the keys of death in Hades? Do you remember that, chapter 1? Who holds the keys? These are our interactive time, people. We need like a light that just says, respond. Jesus holds it, right? So he holds the keys of death in Hades. So it's like Jesus is saying, look, I hold the power of all death. Anything one that dies I'm completely sovereign over and rule over. So if you go forth and it costs you your life, guess what? I rule over death. It just brings you right into my presence, which is why Paul says what? To live is Christ, to die is? You only believe that if what? Christ has the what? Keys. So does he have the keys? Now, we don't go reckless, but we go bold, right? Think about this. We go bold. Now, if we're going to do this, how do we do this? It's going to start by being in the Word and and living it out, saying, okay, if this is God's Word, how do I live it out today? And I would just say, take it one step at a time. How do I obey God today? How do I be faithful today? How do I be faithful the next day? You have someone at work with you who's an unbeliever, how do you start engaging them? How do you start sharing the gospel with them? How do you start doing that? If we can't do that here, however will we go to another nation? If we don't believe Christ is more costly and more precious than peace between us and a co-worker, we're never going to make it somewhere else. But as the church, God has told us who we are. We're his adopted children. We're citizens in the kingdom. He has given us his everything. He has held nothing back. He promises us eternal paradise with him, meeting all of our needs. He says, you will sit with me on the very throne of God. So he's saying, go, now live for me. Show the world my glory. Show the world your love for me. Will it cost you? Yes. Yes, it will cost you. What will it cost? We we don't know every time. You go share to your coworker, he might fall down right then and believe in Christ. Amazing. Or it might be in a week or a month or a year. Or he, he might hate you now. All of those things are possibilities. We don't know. The question is, how do we be faithful? In everything that we have in the text so far, Christ rules, chapter 1. Chapters 2 and 3, you can stand firm, church. Chapter 4, God is sovereign, he's on his throne. Chapter 5, Christ also is sovereign, he's on the throne with God. So we have all of these pictures of God's sovereignty saying, you can go trust in me to work. Will we be faithful and will we go? I think that's where we have to wrestle. And it's a day-by-day decision. So if you're sitting here right now going, there's no way I'm going overseas, great. Let's start where you go across the street. Start there. Just start wherever you are that we be faithful and see what God does. Lastly, we're going to move to uh, the sixth seal. The crushing wrath of the Lamb. It begins in verse 12. It goes all the way to the end of the passage. There's two lists of seven. Seven, remember, seven refers to what? Do you remember in apocalyptic literature? Completion, completeness. Okay? So we have, we have this two lists of seven. The first list uh, shows God's wrath on, on creation. So I, I just, I did this so you can see the seven. Earthquakes, sun becomes black, moon becomes blood, stars fall from the sky, sky vanishes, mountains removed, islands removed. We see that all of creation will melt before the glory of God like wax before a, before a flame. It just melts before him. Creation will be rolled up, and God will make a brand new creation after this. And then we see, okay, so that's creation, but now his wrath also comes against all who have rejected him. Who are those? Well, we have a list of seven. Kings of the earth, great ones, generals, the rich, the powerful, slave, free. Who's not included? Okay, Christians are not included. That was perfect. Um, But it's everyone who hasn't believed in Jesus. I should be more. Who's not? 
I don't even know how to ask the question. We'll just move on. All unbelievers are included in this list. Okay? Like, now just think about that. It doesn't matter how powerful you are, how rich you are, your, your prestige, your power, your position, or your lack of those. You might be sitting here and saying, well, I'm like none of those. I have nothing. It doesn't matter if you have things or you don't have things. All who do not believe in Jesus Christ will experience the wrath of God. And so here Christ is calling the church, press on, press on. It might end in your death, but you will never taste this death. You will never taste this, this death because this is what Christ has absorbed for us on the cross, the eternal death, that, the eternal wrath that leads to the eternal death that all who have not believed in him will experience for all of humanity, for all of eternity. I just want to close three questions. Number one, what or who are you trusting in? Just wrestle through that. Are you truly trusting in Christ? Are you willing to lay down things? Are you not willing to lay down certain things? Just wrestle with that. And if there's things you're not willing to lay down, maybe start writing those down and saying, God, I, I clearly have some things that I need praying over. Write, write those down. Are you standing firm? My second question. Are, are you standing firm right now? Are, are you pressing on? Are you engaging? Are you trying to evangelize those? Do you begin to see that you're compromising or becoming complacent in any area? And, and, and realistically, right, we're an American church. We definitely are tempted with compromising complacency, right? Like the idea of going to the other ends of the earth and shedding our blood, that's, that's hard for us to swallow. Begin praying, how are we standing firm? Are there areas of repentance that I need to go, that I need to bring forth before God? And lastly, how are you being called to go? It's not if, but how. How are you being called to go? If you're a believer, how? Are you being called local? We are great ministries here that need help. Great ministries. Global, we'd love to connect you globally. Um, how are you sending? If you're here, how are you sending? You say, well, I, I give offering. Awesome. It's great. Let's, let's do that more. Let's, let's send all the more. How are you preparing to go? How are you preparing to go? Are you even thinking about that? I, I would say at least every single one of us need to say, God, if you want me to go, I will go. And if you're not willing to say that, I would let that be your first act of prayer and repentance. You say, do you want me to go? And if he does, begin to pray what that looks like. And if he doesn't, say, okay, God, how do I stay local? How do I serve here? And how do I sin really well? It needs both. We need senders and goers. But don't default to sender. We need to wrestle through with this. And I very much realize, very much realize, as, as I say, and we need to ask, are you calling me to go? That that is calling for some of us to die. And, and we have to know that. That's the message of this text. But the good news is our God is sovereign. And he is glorious and there's nothing that separates us from him. And so I urge you, let's take up our cross and follow him wherever he leads us to go.